and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comics Podcast, episode 59. I'm Carissa, if you haven't guessed by now, and I am joined by another nerd, Ryan. Hello. Together, we take on the week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week book, and then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd, and this week, the pick of the week goes to Hawkeye number one. Our companion song is Casey Musgraves' Follow Your Arrow because this isn't normally my typical type of music, but I remember hearing the song before and thinking that it really fit as I was reading this issue. So I kind of remember the song about an arrow and it was kind of sassy. So I feel like it kind of fits. I think it fits. I like it. So let's take a listen. Hawkeye, number one, Marvel Comics, Prime Suspects, written by Kelly Thompson, pencils and inks by Leonardo Romero, and colors by Jordi Belair. I love Jordi Belair. She's pretty awesome. I was surprised. Going into this, I would not have guessed that Hawkeye, especially girl Hawkeye, or any Hawkeye for that matter, would be my pick of the week. I've always really liked Kate Bishop. She's sassy. That's exactly what it is. This book is sassy. It has a lot of the kind of comedy and fun attitude that I think really shows like in Spider-Woman and some of A-Force. It just kind of has that kind of fun, playful comic attitude, I guess. But it starts off with her application to get her own private eye license. Oh, I love that. The opening pages has like little notes and it's just so cute and so funny. I really recommend not skipping over it. It has a lot. Like her, one of her qualified experience it ends with, I'm a freaking Avenger. <laughs> like at the bottom, she's like, $225 for a PI license? No thanks. That just right there grabbed me. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a fun issue. I'm in. So she's in Venice Beach, California. And, like, this whole beginning part reminds me of old school Point Break. One, she's, like, photographing, like, surfers and, like, her talking about them. And she's, you know, basically, you know, you get an intro to her as, like, this, like, voiceover. And then she's watching what's going to be, like, a heist. And, you know, they're doing the president's mask a la Point Break. But I love the little touches that they do in this comic where she's bullseye and targeting in on different key elements. It reminds me of a very funny, sassy version of, like, when you see what the Terminator sees in the movies where he's identifying everything. Yeah, that or, like, the new Sherlock Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr. where he's a punch to the throat. He breaks down all his, like, fight sequences and then it plays out. Yes. There's also that. So she, like, you know, it's like, mini donuts, a running car, properly uncovered plate president mask gun they repeat this sort of thing later on in the issue also and i personally i love that that for me probably is what made me that's my pick of the week i just kind of really like that sort of play it fits in with her character has like her little like target logo and you know it's lavender like their costumes and everything i like it too i think it adds a lot of interest to the panels like the the page you're looking at isn't just a straight presentation of the information and it Mm -hmm. also gives you a lot of her mind because not everything Mm -hmm. she's showing is like tactically relevant you know sometimes it's donuts or abs that she's getting distracted by or, or whatever you know like you can see her mind at work also 
Exactly. And I, I like innocent bystander. Yeah, the mini donut. She makes more hot abs. You know, she gets distracted. And I think that's, just, it's really cute. And as well as information building. The next page I actually really like is where she's getting into her costume. And it's just like, like really close up details of like her getting her ponytail on, you know, along with the aviators and like her running with her quiver on her back. I really love how that one's drawn. It's such a simple panel. But I love it. I love the next panel where it shows her kind of like leaping out and there's graffiti in the background and there's this red line of graffiti that kind of mirrors her movements. I think that's a really, really good panel right there. Oh, that one is really good too. But something about the simplicity and how well drawn and colored the ones with those green colored backgrounds before that. I love those panels. They're they're close ups, but they're action. And it's just, I think it's really well done. And my favorite is when she goes into the bank to stop the robbery. She goes, excuse me, I'm here to make a deposit. Do you accept SAS? I'm like, okay, Kate Bishop, I love you. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I read that, I'm like, it's Carissa. <laughs> They're in the bank, and this is where she uh, breaks it down again with targets. Smoke alarm, baddie, bank teller, glass jaw. It's the guy, in the, one of the baddies in the mask, and she whacks him with her, her bow and arrow. You know, all her little action and running. And like, I like the arrows, and she, it's just so cute. She's like, you know, she calls him a big baby. I like how where she, um, he's a ha ha, you miss me. And she's like, I wasn't aiming for you, punk. And then she like goes, okay, Clint was right about the trick arrows. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you need a trick arrow. So I like that little call out to Clint. It goes on to like her life and how, you know, where she's at right now and her um, not so glamorous current office as she's trying to get her investigations going where it's kind of like, it's like a weird mix because it kind of has that I don't know. It's like the cutier version of Jessica Jones mixed with Spider-Woman. She's like superhero slash private investigator is the new hotness. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. There are a lot of superhero private investigators. She has her little sign. It's like taped up with scotch tape and it's like an eye. And it's like Hawk Investigations. And she gets like the guy, the old man who thinks like it's an optometry office. And <laughs> it's like a whole series of like different people coming in. and All the people who want to find the real Hawkeye so they can kick his ass. <laughs> interesting flip from all these because we've been getting a lot of civil war ones where everyone's like yeah hawkeye woohoo or you know he killed the hulk we're awesome to this i don't know if it's different on the west coast where everyone's like we want to kick his ass i don't think it's because of what he did to the hulk i think it's just because he's a womanizing shitbag (laughs) a lot of the time she gets a job and i love that she goes to one of the colleges and she sneaks in by stealing an id badge and she tries she's trying to blend in and look like a college kid but she's trying to use the computer and she's not clearly skilled at it so she's like god damn it you piece of antiquated crap and like yelling at it getting 404 errors and like the lab technician that's like on duty is like oh can i help you sunshine and she's like what did you call me how dare you failing to realize the id she stole is for a girl named sunshine which i thought was pretty cute and she's like oh total rookie mistake not looking at the name he's like you stole that id she's like nope she keeps on saying it over and over again, and then she runs away. Nope, gotta go. I did not. I'm a detective. <laughs> I actually really like that play because the guy's like helping her, but at the same time, he's like trying to interrogate her. And she- this is not the first time she's been a private detective in California. This is, you know, what's on the last, uh, not the last run of Hawkeye, but the last big run of Hawkeye. There was a whole series about this as well. And I like that she's not really that good of a detective, but usually she will end up fixing the problem in the end. But I like kind of her misadventures and thinking she's doing, you know, the right thing and figuring it out when she really isn't. I think that's why I like her, that she's kind of like fake it 
till you make it kind of thing. Yeah. And I think there's something endearing about that, that she's like just trying and just not really doing the best, but, but doing it, you know, because it's clearly not what she's really good at. It's not a bow and arrow. So she's just kind of like a normal person trying to attempt to investigate. This is what right. they might try to do. Like she kind of knows what you're supposed to do. She's just not very good at it all. But I think it makes it really relatable. So I like that. And then again, more of the target. Not Mika. Delicious sandwich. More good abs. Hot professor type. <laughs> when she's running sick, nature's ladder when she sees a tree and runs up it. Prime suspect. It's pretty good. Someone gets kidnapped and ta-da! Next issue. She's hired to find this stalker. So that's why she's at the college and she's yeah. running down her list of suspects and she sees this creepy weirdo taking pictures of, like, lurking in the alleyway, taking her picture mm-hmm. without permission. So she, like, chases him down and beats him up and she's like, that was easy. And then, like, the next page is the person that hired her getting kidnapped and thrown in a van. So yeah. obviously not the right person. So I'm actually looking forward to this, especially if it keeps up this kind of pace and this level of, like, cutesy. No, I don't want to say cutesy because I'm afraid it's going to turn off, like, a lot of male readers. Play f- I just like how I said, I hope they keep on this vein. We all really liked A-Force, especially at the end. We kind of felt it had been get- hitting its stride and then it got cancelled. And that was mm-hmm. Kelly Thompson also. So it's it's good to see her back in a series. I was pleasantly surprised, delighted even. I really enjoyed this. It makes me want to keep reading it. So that's why it was mostly my pick of the week because I find very significant if I'm going kind of like I did with Prowler but this is I like this better than Prowler but if I go into something thinking oh gosh I'm just gonna have to power through this issue to cover it I'm not really gonna like it and then I'm completely wrong and I end up really enjoying it then I feel like if you can win me over when I go into something not liking then you deserve to be up in my top ranking so that's how I got it I gave it a solid four do you accept sass I will give it four nature's ladder moving on to something totally different <laughs> totally not cute. <laughs> yes. We have Clean Room number 14 from Vertigo Comics, One Step Over the Abyss, written by Gail Simone, art by Walter Giovanna, colors by Quentin Winters. So this one picks up uh, with the horrible little child that's possessed by a demon, and the demon child is talking to them and telling them how they're going to like build a bridge out of human beings and walk over them with like nails on their boots. You know, kind of this vision of what their hell is going to look like. Yeah. And then she starts taunting Chloe with the visions of, like, her dead boyfriend who's been guiding her and her rock and kind of inspiration. And he's like, do you really think your love is so special that it could survive death? She's like, that was us the whole time. And then he kind of causes the boyfriend to appear and start talking to her, which totally crushes her. Which I think really points out how insightful and evil they are. That they can hurt you physically and they can hurt you mentally and, like, deep in your soul, too, if they choose to. They're not just physical threats. So Astra's kind of watching this go on, and then she has them electrocute the living shit out of the little kid, which I'm not sure if it kills the kid either, but it definitely seems to kill the demon. So it wasn't clear to me if she killed her niece or just drove the demon out of him with one of those big electrical blasts like they used on Spark. Because when they used it on Spark, Spark was not in a host at the time. So I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if Astra was cold-blooded enough to kill her niece without a second thought or if she just drove the demon out of her. But so that all ends. And then you get that person that we had like said was like a serial killer stalker type with the Astra Bueller number one fan t-shirt and his hair done like her. And he wants to talk to 
to Astrid. And he says that he knows things that they need to to know. So they go to this meeting, and the kind of interesting part about it is in the meeting, he takes control of the clean room because he's also a person who can do that, just like Chloe and Astrid can do that. So Astrid doesn't meet with him. He sends Chloe and one of her assistants in there. And he gets kind of mad that he has to deal with them. And he takes control of the clean room and brings them into a memory where you find out that, yes, he is, in fact, a creepy-ass serial killer. So it's this basement where he has this woman, like, tied up, covered in blood, and he's going to turn her from, like, a bad woman. What does he call them? Call them critters. She's, like, a dirty slut in his mind, like all women are, except for Astrid Mueller. And he's going to shave her head and put an Astrid Mueller wig on her and turn her into Astrid. And that seems to be what he does to a lot of women. Like, this looks... This reminds me a lot of in Sin City, when they're in the trapped in the basement and there's all the like the heads mounted on the wall and you realize what's the full scope of what's going on. This is kind of like that. The guy who has control of the clean room gets really mad at the the two women that are there and realizes that they're also dirty and out to get him. So he traps them there back in his memories where he, they have to deal now with him as the serial killer. Mm-hmm. It was creepy. And it was kind of a, I knew that the guy was going to be bad. I didn't know exactly how he was going to be bad. And the fact that he is able to take control of the clean room and trap them is really interesting because he has control of them in this part of reality, but he also has the clean room under his control. So I think Astrid's going to have to come in and kind of whoop his ass, you know? Mm-hmm. There's also a really creepy part where Astrid confronts her brother about what happened to her niece, like how she came to be. And he was part of like this cult and there's this like demon orgy basically that's created the niece, which was also very weird and creepy. Like when they show the demons coming up behind him and like putting their hand on his shoulder and just, it's gross. <laughs> it's like this like yeah. all kinds of eyeballs and, and nastiness. Nostrils and ears, like multiples of everything. Tongues coming out of chins. Oh, it's creepy. It doesn't quite reach the level that we got from the previous artist for creepiness, which I think is why this book didn't 100% hit with me is in previous issues of Clean Room, they would all be pretty good like this one is, but there would always be that one moment of true, just like horror of something you'd never seen before. And this one came kind of close, but it's only like 80% of the way there. So Mm. I'm kind of missing the previous artist on this book a little bit. I also feel like it jumped weirdly sometimes. Like things would just like all of a sudden be happening. I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, they're cutting back and forth is not quite as clear as it has been in the past. It felt really disjointed to me. So overall, I think it was a strong issue, but I don't think it was the best issue of Clean Room I've ever read. I did like the scene where back to us talking how Astra's just acting kind of off where um, she's like, I don't think I ever heard you cuss before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then so she has her cuss again, and she uses, like, the Astrid versions of the words. Yeah. Intercourse. Feces. feces. Thank you. Yeah. And then later on, Chloe's like, but I, well, intercourse. <laughs> so I'm saying, she starts acting like the Astrid. So, like, it could have hit harder, but it still was pretty damn creepy. Yeah, and I think anytime you're trapped with a serial killer, mm-hmm. that's always going to make for a really interesting story part. So I'm kind mm-hmm. of interested to see that. And I'm also curious what Astrid will do about it. Like, like, I think Astrid will still work with the person. If they can do, if they can take control of the clean room and it's one of the few people on Earth that can do it, she probably will find a way to work with that person. Yeah. I think she cares a lot more about defeating these aliens than stopping a serial killer. I will give it three and a half. Did you think your love was so special it could survive death? I gave it three and a half. Well, intercourse. <laughs> so over to another fantasy world. That's right. We've got Reborn, number three. Three, Image Comics written by Mark Millar, pencils by Greg Capullo, inks by Jonathan Glapion, and colors by Foucault 
Alicia. So we are back with Bonnie and her dad on their adventures towards the Dark Lands, I guess is what we're calling it. So it starts with flying elephants. Very Dumbo-esque. It reminded me of you. And he's saying how, like, oh, you know, he's a trainer. They like to fly. Oh, he, you know him since you were a kid. She waves to him, and then the, him and the elephants are taken out by a lion-faced dragon swarm. Or just the one lion face. The rest of them are regular dragons. Yeah. And yeah, so he's like, oh, that's why they're getting bolder, crossing over the borders. I told you that, you know, we need to hide and scurry. I think that's also a really good use of perspective, like to show you the real size of that dragon. Because like yeah. first the panels start with like an elephant. And you know how big an elephant mm-hmm. is, so you have a, a pretty good idea. And then it shows this dragon thing just eating that in like one bite. It's, it's big. <laughs> real yeah, big. Definitely. So they hide in the forest and they're walking through this dark woods and they come upon a statue of the fairy king, which was her friend who's now the queen's husband. And you you get a little bit more insight how he came back older you know not young like some people and just wants to know what happened to him and there's still fairies buzzing around them like the really small ones not like how giant her friend was and the dad is not subtly asking about like her mom and like did she move on and the, Bonnie's reassuring him no she stayed a widower she never even looked at anyone else and you know basically making him feel relieved but that's when they're attacked by some ruffian sort a goblin press gang or something there mohawk and sticks to hit you with. Raiders. So, you know, they take them out and they're like, oh, we were right. She doesn't have her powers. And they throw um, Roy Boy off of a cliff. Oh, so sad. I know. And the little look on his face as he's falling is really sad. He's very terrified and like, you know, for a dog that can be ridden by someone, these guys are pretty big to pick him up and throw him like that. Yeah, because when they pick him up, he looks like a regular sized dog. So they're probably twice the size of a normal person. And so they zap her with like some sort of weird magic wand thing and knock her out. And, you know, they keep talking about how she doesn't have her powers yet. They take her to across the border to like this shanty town in the Darklands and they have her and her dad chained to a pole. And basically like they're like a bunch of weird gangsters. They have a bounty on their head and they want to collect and they're like oh well we're just you know entrepreneurs they take her magic sword which they seem to know more about it than she ever did still looks shiny and sparkly but we still don't know what it does and even in this issue they don't really tell you what it does it's just, apparently it holds some significance though because every time they show it to us it's all like gleaming and it gets its own panel they do tell her sorry about the dog by the way which is like pretty messed up i think yeah they say like even if you're strong they have them bound with spells and i like how they're talking to frost old big cat coming along on like some land speeder and he's like no i have my own reasons you'll wait for me to get there i want this woman not just for yeah he wants his own personal revenge for taking his junk when he was a kitten i still love that part i do like too that she's smart enough to realize that the chains that they're on may be unbreakable but the post that they're tied to isn't correct that's pretty smart so she's like thinking her way out of the situation with her dad and saying follow my lead we're gonna get out there so yeah they maneuver it so they're still attached to the pole but they can still move the pole and get out they rip it out of the ground and then they're still tied to it but he's kind of carrying it on his back and she's strapped to the other side of it you know when it lands it splinters and then they're able to shimmy out of the chains after that and then she also and i guess i like how there's the zoom in on the eyes kind of like that moment of clarity like oh no i got this like something clicks in her head and she's like right when she got shocked it was kind of the same panel so i think that might have awakened something within her yes yeah, so you get these weird kind of dreamy-esque panels there's two of them where she all of a sudden starts seeing things in a different way and then it shows her kicking ass you know, high kick splits to, you know, two different opponents. Just, you know, being a badass. She activates the Matrix, learns Kung Fu, and starts whooping some ass. And they take off, and they're like, what about the sword? They're like, we'll deal with that later. That seems like something that you might want to deal with right now, considering yeah. how important everyone thinks the sword is, but whatever. Plot 
point, I guess. Yeah. Trying to escape, and then some mysterious, menacing, cloaked figure. It's like, hurry through here. You can hide in here. I'm sorry. You're in the Darklands already, and he looks extra spooky bad. Yeah, he looks super evil. Yeah, so I'm not sure why, but they're like, hurry, just go in here. So they jump through the weird glowing portal in his cloak, and they end up, like, in some sort of prison for the Darklands, like political prisoners, and there's a bunch of people, and there's, like, flames and fire and a bunch of people that their people trapped. They end up in, like, hell's version of hell. Dad realizes where they're at. He's like, we're in the dungeon for people who piss off Golgotha. And then, like, this huge ogre nasty thing with, like, spikes and grizzled, like, and a cod piece that's also spiked. It's like, don't worry, nobody's here for long. And, like, he lumbers in with a bunch of other people who are also big, but smaller than him. Yeah, they come up to, like, his knee. About taller than Bonnie come in with, like, guns and weapons and they just don't look friendly. And that's where we leave off, them trapped in this hell-floating prison place. Yeah, I thought it was a good action-adventure issue. I think it moved the plot along. It didn't really solve anything, but mm. it did introduce some new twists to it. You get to see how strong her dad actually is, that you can see that the Darklands are not really united, that you know every faction you're introduced to, they all fear the main bad guy and don't want to openly disobey him, but they all have their own agendas that they're willing to pursue. Yeah, it's like anarchy, pirates, raiders, it's just like all for themselves kind of thing yes yeah, it's why it wasn't my pick. Like, I, like I agree. It was action-packed. It moved the story forward. But it didn't have any of those big pivotal moments. Like, maybe if it had the... F- I really want to see what Frost says to Bonnie when he finally sees her. Like, I want to know what his opening line is. Like, when he airs his grievances, as it were. That's what I'm looking forward to right now. And I'm kind of hoping that, since you don't actually see Roy Boy get hurt, that maybe he'll kind of be limping back somewhere eventually. Or maybe, like, a giant eagle grabs him when he's falling or something. You don't know for sure. Yeah, maybe there was a marshmallow pond beneath at the end of that cliff. <laughs> Keep hope alive. Because you didn't see it, so I'm like hoping maybe he might I'm return. just hoping, you know, they're down to their last desperate moment or whatever, and then he comes in like Falcor or something like that, you know, like yeah. <laughs> Roy Boy Reborn <laughs> to come in and save the day. It was a good issue, just wasn't a great issue. I agree. I'm going to give it a mid-range, a two and a half. Those fairies like to gossip, because apparently the fairies are the ones that told the raiders that they were in the forest. Well, I think I liked it a little more than you did. I mean, the previous ones I've given really high ratings to, but I will give this one three and a half. Sorry about the dog. Other people who've been hurt, we've got Detective Comics number 946 from DC Comics, The Victim Syndicate Part 4, Death Wish, written by James Tinney in the Fourth, pencils by Eddie Barrows, inks by Eber Ferreria, colors by Adriano Lucas. So this one is kind of interesting. This is very much a, like, why does each person fight issue. So they're fighting the victim syndicate who are all these people who have been either hurt by Batman or like the supervillains that he has fought and that they think that there's this cycle of violence that keeps going on and nothing ever really gets solved and it just creates more supervillains and more victims and more pain and that's basically what they're trying to stop. They're trying to stop Batman so that they shut down this cycle of violence which I get where they're coming from but it seems like you're going after the wrong part of the wheel that you want to break. Mm -hmm. You know You know, they've been hurt really badly, so I can kind of give that to them. There's actually this really interesting way that it opens up with Tim Drake and Batman when they're standing in the old Court of Owls thing that they're going to make into into the Belfry, into their base that they use for Detective Comics. And they're talking about how 
this could change the world. You know, that they, now that Batman is willing to have a team, which he keeps denying it's not a team, it's a training program. Mm -hmm. And Robin is like, that's bullshit. If that was what this was, I wouldn't be here because I don't need any training. And Bruce is kind of like, you're right. There'll be moments when I don't trust people, when I don't reach out to people, and I need you by my side to remind me to do that. And then, you know, Tim's like, don't worry, Batman, I'll always be there by your side, which of course... He is not because he died. I mean, he didn't really die, but everyone thinks he's dead. Yes. So I thought that was kind of a interesting scene looking back on it. And that anytime you know when the person is going to meet a horrible end and they have the scene where they're like, I'll always be there for you, you know, and telling you why they need them to counterbalance out Batman's like darkness. So that, I thought that was pretty good the opening scene there. So then it opens up and there's this final assault on where the victim syndicate is holed up. And like each member of the Detective Comics team is kind of going into like different floors to take people out, which means they're going to be fighting different members of the victim syndicate. So you've got Batman fighting the first victim, and there's a lot of back and forth between them, where they're again kind of just explaining what they're doing. The part that is kind of the most interesting, but not quite clear part, is where Stephanie has like this danger room, holodeck kind of version of Tim Drake that she's talking to. It's this... I found that part interesting. He created this training program, right? But only she can access it, so that she can talk to him. It's a learning program, so as it's talking to her, it's learning like he kind of keeps asking her the same questions over and over again but it's paying attention to her responses and she's talking about how this world is really messed up like they used to sit up late at night and talk about how the world was going to be they were going to go off to college they were going to stop being superheroes you know but they were still going to help the world in other ways and that everything went to shit and this isn't the world that she wants which turns out to be really relevant later on so you've got batman brawling with the first victim and batman isn't willing to really hurt this person he's really more trying to figure out tell me who you are because he doesn't know who that is like tell me who you are and i can fix it i can make it better i can do whatever and the victim syndicate the first victim is saying i'm everyone i'm not one person you can't just fix one thing so they're they're brawling back and forth with that and then there's this kind of touching scene which you know takes a turn right at the end between clayface and mudface so mudface is his assistant who worked on the films with him who got also hit with the chemicals that turned him into clayface and clayface explained in the last issue that if he can't assume his human form, his brain can't fit together the same way. So the parts of his brain that control morality and kind of like your drive to just take what you want, that part of his brain isn't formed when he's in his clay face. So, you know, every time he goes into it, it risks him like losing himself. And Mudface, his assistant, cannot transform either. So he feels really sorry for her and he takes off the little gauntlets that Batman gave him that allow him to change. And he's like, you deserve these more than I do. So she puts them on and she's able to transform back into herself and there's this moment where she's like oh god like she's so you know maybe relieved and maybe even horrified at some of the things she's done and then he's like I'm so sorry and that's when you realize that the things have been rigged to shock her into like a to knock her out then you have a Batwoman is fighting Madame Crow who used to be the Scarecrow's teaching assistant or research assistant they tested all of his fear toxin on before he used it on Batman and she's created this anti-fear toxin which you think might be a good thing but fear is actually a very useful response for people to have. Keeps you from walking into traffic or playing with loaded guns or whatever. I mean, fear has a purpose. It's when the fear is irrational that it becomes kind of like a problem. So she's making this offer to Batwoman that Batwoman must have had some trauma that's made her terrified and she's trying to correct that. So if she took the anti-fear toxin, then her mind would be clear and she could decide if she wanted to continue fighting or not. So she kind of gasses the room and Batwoman just keeps whooping her ass and they're like, oh, the antidote you took must have worked. And she's like, well, I didn't need it. Now, I don't know if that's bullshit or if she really isn't afraid.
shade and that so that doesn't affect her i'm not sure and then you have the pestilence guy who kind of threatens to turn her into like a big pile of boils and nastiness and batwing comes in and blasts him with his nanobots to go in and try and fix all the diseases that are in him he's like i don't think it'll work because there's too many of them but this is going to hurt like hell and incapacitate you for a while so they're not killing anybody here i mean obviously they're bat people so they're not going to kill anybody but Mm. they're they're taking them out but they're using non-lethal ways of doing it and then you get this creepy it's like one of the joker's victims who harper Rowe, if you remember some of the old previous uh, batman stories she's helping this old woman out of the hospital because they're at where this assault is taking place is the free clinic that is ran by batman's like street surgeon his version of the night nurse so one of the joker's victims is there with like a knife to kill people that's when orphan shows up and she's just got a couple words she's like no and then she like leaps on him in this kind of jujitsu pose and says listen and puts these headphones on him which drops him to the ground in this like fetal position what is that and that's his wife who was killed by the joker her last message that she left him playing on a repeat and they're like oh that's so sad so that's how they took that guy down so it's interesting that they're going after these people in very specific ways to take them out like clearly they've thought about how to take them down so then the part the twisting part that you get is towards the end where they've got them all on the ropes like they're gonna wrap this up and tie it in a big bat bow and that's when spoiler shows up i don't know if she switched sides over to their side but she doesn't like the world as it is and she thinks that she's the only one left who can fix the problem so she's kind of turned on the team and now they have to go after her as well so i thought it was kind of an interesting issue examining why each of these people fight and it reveals a lot of their characters as they're fighting like the way they choose to go after these people and i thought the Mm -hmm. art was pretty good for it the most interesting panel was the part with tim drake his little hologram talking to stephanie but i think the best one was the one with clayface i thought that was really good what do you think of it those were my two favorites like clayface and his particular run the hologram thing was really interesting i just happen to love that interpersonal interactions between characters but one thing is i feel bad for this particular run for detective comics because compared to the one that we read in the weeks before with the whole the Catwoman and bane oh the regular batman one i like it so much more that i feel like this one is not getting its fair shake even though it's good, it's not the same. Tom King in the regular Batman one is a once-in-a-generation talent. He is amazing on Batman and was made to, to write that stuff. This is pretty good, and this is a different kind of story. It's really good, but when I read it almost back-to-back with that other one, Tom King's, I'm just like, this is not fair. Yeah, it's like when you have an A-plus work, and then you have a B. You know, it looks that much worse yeah. in comparison. I really do like Clayface. I don't think that was easy for him, and I really like that interaction. And it's really interesting to see how that character has grown and i really appreciate that and yeah the um the hologram thing i found was really interesting just because it was learning it wasn't quite there and just how you know it's hard for her to interact with it and this i felt like it really brought an emotional tie to it that i i really appreciate i really like what they're doing with clayface in this run i really feel like they're expanding on the character and explaining things the part where they explain that when he's in his clayface form his brain can't form properly and that that causes Mm -hmm. him to be a psychopath i think that is very very interesting interesting and makes a lot of sense to me i mean as much as comic book stuff makes sense that does make sense that there's literally something wrong with his brain i would give it three and a half listen i gave it three this is the end of the line crash landed on earth end of the line we've got something here guardians of the galaxy number 15 marvel comics grounded part one written by brian michael bendis pencils and inks by valero shitty and colors by richard isanove so this grounded issue is just a bengrim issue it looks like they're taking each of their stories and telling them individually i think that's what grounded is going to be is in each issue is going to be a guardian 
Guardian. So this is not the Guardian I would have preferred to start with, but it's the one we got. I think it's a pretty solid Ben Grimm story. Like I feel with Venom and the thing, when I first think of them, I don't think of them as a Guardian. Sure. So to start the Guardian run of Grounded with him just seems kind of off for me because they're not my go-to. I'm like, no, he's Fantastic Four. Sure, he joined them later. I think he fits in really well with them, though. I think his whole tie into space is a lot stronger than Yeah, I mean, he is an astronaut and all that, but still, he's not my go-to. Sure. He finds himself stuck here. He doesn't have his normal hat and trench coat in his, like he normally would walk around town and he wasn't expecting to have to be here. So he he finds himself back at the big and tall shop that he would normally frequent and the guy there recognizes him and even though he doesn't have his wallet or any money, he's asked to borrow, you know, a hat and coat and the guy is happy to oblige and Ben's a little like, huh, what? And he shows him a picture of his granddaughter and oh my god, that drawing is adorable. Of a little toddler in a Fantastic Four onesie. It's so cute. She's like, she hasn't been eaten by a big purple monster. She hasn't, you know, none of these bad things have happened to her because you were here. So he's like, don't worry about it. He makes like a, kind of like a Thanos reference. He's like, you're a good man. And then he also goes on top of that and gives him money. He's like, here, go get something to eat, a shower, a hotel, anything. Just thank you for all you've done. I think the big purple guy that he, from outer space that he's talking about is Galactus, which is like more of a Fantastic Four uh, reference, I think. So he shows up at a pizza parlor and he's asking for like all three that are like ready. And he's like, what? He's like, no, all of the pizza, <laughs> not just slices. Do you see me? I'm the thing. I'm a big orange rock. I'm going to eat all of that. Again, one of the guys at the pizza shop recognizes him and is like, no, he doesn't pay. Yeah. Do you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. I like that. They're trying to eat his pizza and then it does get really heartfelt. Like there are some good panels where it's close-ups of him and he just looks sad and very introspective to himself. Like, you know, he's lost in his thoughts and he's remembering times with the Fantastic Four as family time, like eating pizza. Contrast to him sitting alone with like a stack of pizza by himself. I think it's pretty heartbreaking. Really well done panels. Really closely parallels the two, like you're saying. It's him eating a slice of pizza, then remembering looking again, almost like not exactly like an outsider, but at the edge of the panel, looking in on the memory, eating the pizza. It's really strong artwork. Uh, and then Hill shows up. Oh, I hate Maria Hill <laughs> so much. I'm so sick of her. Well, she's there being herself, trying to recruit him in an annoying fashion. He knows he has no choice, that he's there, that they're stuck. So, I mean, it's a very manipulative feeling. And she puts the one thing in front of him that he can't say no to. I like how he has his little flashback of the alien chica that he's missing. He's like, but does it really matter because I can't get out there to her anyway? So she brings up Victor Von Doom and how he looks healed and thinks he's a good guy. So she doesn't necessarily mention the armor, so I'm assuming this takes place before he's took Tony's armor. Do you remember there was a panel, I think it was in, it wasn't infamous Iron Man, I think it was towards the end of the regular Iron Man one where Ben Grimm shows up. So I think this is taking place before Doctor Doom takes the Iron Man armor. It grates on me. I feel it takes away from the story where I'm sitting having to try to figure it out. I feel that too because I feel like that part of the story where he shows up at the end where it's like I'm kind of a big deal, Mm -hmm. which is from another comic, that happened months ago and other things have happened since because this is right after Civil War 2, after the big battle with the ship gets blown up and this is like before that so it's the timeline is getting a little wonkified so he starts looking into the things that maria hill had talked to him about and he shows up at stark tower and it's a big pile of rubble and it's guarded by some of his sentry suits and that's where um, mj shows up and she's talking to him and he's asking her he's basically trying to catch up and she's the little thing that's explaining him what's going on i like when they shake hands you can see the size difference between them that her hand is the yeah. size of one of his fingers it's like oh i used to be a 
Mark. Uh, I like the little story between her and him where he talks about, they talk about Johnny. Oh yeah, how he would have the model catalogs like he was ordering takeout. <laughs> He'd just call up the yes. modeling agencies and like, do they want to date me? I'm famous, <laughs> you know? And he's like, oh, I like you even more. When she's like, I, I turned him down. It's like, okay, that was cute. And she looks pretty good there. She looks like modern and updated, but she still has kind of a 60s vibe to her with her like go-go boots. and. So then random super villain shows up, Whiplash. From Iron Man 2, you might recognize him from. I mean, he's an old Iron Man villain, yes. but it's, I love this part. He's like, oh, Tony stole my life. And he's just like going on and on. And this thing just like, just punches him. Like grabs his whip, pulls him close, and then it's like, where are time. <laughs> I like how he grabbed it. It's like, you know, like grab it where it's like two fingers he's like doink yeah it was so easy for him just to like whoop his ass <laughs> you know just like one punch yeah. yeah and then like the face where it shows his mask broken off and it's like he is like beat up his eyes all swollen and it's like hey is he dead <laughs> no he's okay the cops are like trying to get a statement from him and he just like sums up he's like he showed up i punched him it's over yeah it's like i'm trying to have a conversation here with her yeah that part was really cute eventually mj reveals that cambridge doctor that both tony and victor have been talking to Mara Pereira. I guess I never really saw it as Victor really interested in her. I thought it was more he was just giving her like a job to go Tony. But they seem worded as they're courting both of them. And so that they think that they're fighting over her. So I guess I mean I mean I didn't think so, but I um, guess so. But I do like to check, oh how is outer space? What was it like? It's like food sucked. <laughs> I do also like when Maria Hill has him back at the helicarrier and she, you know, has the bag of all his like clothes prepared and money and all that stuff because she knows he doesn't have any of that and he's like your car is outside yeah. and he's like i have a car and then you you get to see yeah. the fantastic car and he's like I that was yeah funny. he's like oh yeah <laughs> he like flies off in it face he looks all smug when he's driving dude that thing looks like a flying like tylenol it's so classic though for the fantastic four i know but it's so cheesy it is it is cheesy <laughs> so he flies in his car to cambridge to go find amara and he wants to ask her about victor it's interesting so he takes the job he introduces himself as an agent of shield it says the story's going to continue an infamous Iron Man and hopefully it catches up but I do like it the next issue is a Groot is a Groot is a Groot so yes it's a Groot issue coming up the cover for that one reminds me of a lot of like a Dr. Seuss cover it looks very 60s or 70s that I need it in the background I think it's going to be the Groot version of the Lorax you know because you've got this Dr. Seussy military industrial complex fighting the US government and they've all got their ridiculous Seussian machines with missiles and guns on them and Groot's kind of in the yeah. middle with this little plant that he's protecting. Background art looks like Schoolhouse Rock artwork. It looks very, like, retro. But I also know that Marvel Now is coming out with a Gamora and a Star-Lord issue ones coming out soon. So we are going to get more of those characters that aren't in this Guardians of the Galaxy run, which I'm looking forward to those. Rating-wise, it is a really good Ben story. I don't necessarily consider it a Guardian story. Um, For that, it, it gets a couple points off. I'll give it a four. The food sucks. Not really a Guardians of the Galaxy issue, but it's a really good Ben Grimm story. This has almost nothing to do with Guardians, but for what it is on its own, is pretty decent. I will give it three and a half on kind of a big deal. So then we have Spider-Man number 10 from Marvel Comics, written by Brian Michael Bendis, pencils and inks by Nicole Leone, colors by Marta Gracia and Rachel Rosenberg. This is very much a, a Brian Michael Bendis talking heads issue. Not much action happens, but you get a lot of plot that gets revealed, and you get a lot of really good character development. 
So it opens, there's this kind of interesting and funny scene with Gonke. I'm not sure, I wish I really knew how to say his name, but I'm going to go with Gonke. Crawling up the side of a building, he gets to the top, like, throws his backpack over, and he's like, oh my god, that's so hard, I need spider powers. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> Miles makes it look so easy. So they found Miles in the dorm room, just kind of like sitting in the dark, crying. This is after the confrontation in Washington. And here you find out what happened. You'll probably get more of it in the next Civil War, but here you see the bare bones of what happened and the impact it's had on Miles. So Miles is just just a wreck about what happened. This to me more of a stop messing with the scheduling. Yeah, because there's a reveal in here that we haven't seen yet. It's been hinted at yeah. in Infamous Iron Man and in this. This one, Miles, he's got kind of like a blanket wrapped around himself. He's sitting in the dark. He's crying. I mean, he's clearly in a lot of distress. So he's kind of giving you a summary of what's happened before. And he's talking about the vision that he had. Gunke's trying to comfort him at first. He's like, are you sure that was Captain America? America. Maybe it was, you know, a fake Captain America. And he's like, no, I could feel the chain mail. Like, I could feel my hand around his neck, and I could feel the chain mail snapping before, like, his neck snapped. You know, like, I could feel the bones breaking. Yeah. Like, that was very real for me. It wasn't just like I saw this happen. I experienced it happen. <laughs> There's a panel that I really love, where when Gonke is trying to help his friend out, he comes up with this crazy theory that maybe Captain America is a secret bad guy, and that he found out what happened. Maybe the vision is him figuring it out and doing something something about it. And Miles is like, don't be ridiculous, <laughs> which is absolutely yeah. what we've been saying a lot of the time that this, if Miles found out that Captain America was really an agent of Hydra, that that might cause him to do this mm-hmm. and be justified in doing it. I think I mentioned before, because you also posted that panel. I was like, I've been that person, like you're in a, a tabletop game and you're like, you figure it out and you're telling everyone your idea and the rest of your party's like, no. yeah, no. There's an aspect of this issue that I kind of wanted to highlight is where Miles is being confronted by the police. And they really drive home a lot of things that are happening with police violence. That Miles is an African-American teenager who's being confronted by the cops and told to put his hands up in the air. And he's telling them, you know, don't shoot. And he's describing how afraid he is. And there's like a line where he says, I can't breathe. You know, so I think they're really commenting on that very forcefully here. And then Miles is, he's afraid. He doesn't know what to do. That even though he has all these superpowers, he keeps thinking back to all these things he's seen on the news. And that fear kind of paralyzes him until like Maria Hill calls them off. We've seen this before in Civil War and then he and Captain America have their conversation and then as Miles is explaining what's happening, all the other members of his support team show up. Goldball shows up, who was I guess in the shower when they called him, so he shows up on just like a towel. He's like, I came as quick as I could yeah. when I heard. And then, you know, he <laughs> puts on his clothes and then uh, Miss Marvel shows up, you know. And they're like, you can't just barge in here. What if we were naked? She's like, well, then I'd be throwing up right now. And then what I felt was like the real heart of the issue is where Miles explains why the vision scared him so much. That everyone else was like, he's such a good kid. He could never do this. And he's like, well, my uncle was a really, really bad dude. And I used to really look up to him. And then I found out my dad isn't that much better. You know, that he also used to be like a gangster bad guy. So that's kind of like in my family's blood. And whenever I'm fighting these people, I think just... Just how easy it would be to hit them with like my full strength and like you know rip their head off i mean literally rip their head off and just end the threat and he fights and struggles for all these people and people hate him and no one appreciates what he does and it's really really hard and why shouldn't he just use his powers to take what he wants and get what he deserves out of life and that he you know he resists these urges but he's afraid of them he knows that that darkness is within him and that's when his friends tell him you know everyone has dark thoughts everyone has fears you're not alone in that 
And then he tells you what really happened when Iron Man shows up and fights Captain Marvel is you get, and I guess this is a big spoiler, so if you really don't want to hear the spoiler, although it's been hinted at in a lot of issues, we've tried to avoid it. Pause it, go read your issue, then come back. So, this one, you see Tony is dead, and Spider-Man is, like, cradling his body. That He died in the fight with Captain Marvel. Miles' face is his pupil for his dead eyes. I was like, oh. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, one of the close-ups of Tony's eyes where his, his open and their dead eyes, it's Miles' head is the pupil in the drawing. So, Miles looking down at him. It's like, uh, it's pretty. it's a pretty strong drawing. And I don't know if this is one of those instances where knowing about the vision that was going to happen has changed the vision. That the original thing would have been confirmed confronting Captain America and killing him, probably because, like Ganke says, Captain America is an evil, you know, secret douchebag who's an agent of Hydra, but because everyone else interfered, Mm -hmm. it ends up with a confrontation between Captain Marvel and Iron Man, where Iron Man dies. So, Miles is not taking this well at all. It's really gotten to him. Blames himself. He does. He was there that Tony wouldn't have been there trying to save him from Captain Marvel. And one thing that I don't think Miles has realized yet is that the force field that Iron Man put around him to protect him also would prevent him from going after Captain America. That I don't think he's quite mm-hmm. realized yet that maybe Iron Man wasn't 100% trusting him either. Just yeah. like a barricade or a wall keeps both parties out. I think that's an aspect that they didn't really hit on, but occurred to me. So while they're telling him, you know, don't worry, you're never going to be evil like your dad. You're like 100 times better than he is. There's this uh. heartbreaking scene where his dad is going to his dorm to check on him, and he's standing outside the door and he hears it, and there's this look of just like shock and hurt, and he kind of like walks away from the door. Like, it's really painful to hear your child not respect you or value you or think that you're bad and that they never want to be like you. That's really hard. And it's natural. I mean, every kid, you know, will say something to that effect to their parents at one point or another. The drawing where he hears that and he like recoils from the door like it's a hot stove that he just touched. And that look of like kind of like pain and confusion on his face. Those are really strong panels. That is some damn good drawing. But then I always get frustrated the fact that he walked away. I understand he's hurt and that it's painful and everything like that. But at some point as a parent I'm like, no, but you walked away. Your kid still needs you despite that. And that's why I always get mad. like, don't walk away. Pause and wait outside the door for a while. Give him the space. But don't leave. Right. I, mean, I guess one thing to keep in mind too is that what Miles is saying about him is probably the worst things about himself that he knows. You know, that he was a bad man and he is doing things behind Miles' back. You know, to protect him ultimately, but there are things that he's doing. I mean, just like every parent does things their kids will never know about for their benefit. Mm -hmm. When you hear something that's bad, it's another thing entirely if what you're hearing you know to also be at least somewhat true. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good issue. It had a really strong reveal for plot-wise overall what's happening in the Marvel Universe. We get to see Death of Iron Man here. But you also get really strong characterizations for Spider-Man that I really feel like I understand Spider-Man's perspective on all this before. Because everyone else's outsider view was, he would never do this, he's so good. And I agreed with him. I'm like, yes, Miles Morales is a great kid. Like, he would never do that. And here you Mm -hmm. get to see that even people you think of outwardly as being not exactly perfect, but, you know, will always make the right decision. That they have their own doubts and fears. Everyone has those. It's I thought that was interesting Mm -hmm. to see. I just wish it was lined up better time-wise, release-wise. They added extra issues into Civil War that it's really screwed with a lot of other production schedules that if they'd kept the correct number of issues of Civil War, these things would probably be lining up a heck of a lot better. But when they added in the extra issues, they can't really move around everything on their schedule to accommodate that. So it makes things a little wonky right now. 
I will give it four. There was nothing I could do about it. I also gave it four. I was giving you one last chance. That was it. All right. Oh, Tony. Speaking of last chances, <laughs> we're on to another Marvel title. Yes. Inhumans versus X-Men number one. Marvel Comics written by Charles Soule and Jeff Lemire. Pencils by Lionel Francis Yu. And inks by Jerry Allen Gillian. And colors by Davis Curiel. Sorry, people. I'm trying. This issue is interesting. I really liked this one. There were parts that I really liked, and there's some surprises. I like when I'm surprised by an issue. In this issue, we'll get yeah. to it in a little more detail, but they talk about that they have this plan, and then when you see the plan unfold, I was surprised. I was like, holy shit, that is a really yeah. good plan. They really worked that out to perfection. We start off in New York at the quiet room, and it's packed, and there's a woman performing, and she's singing, and we see Flagman and Black Bolt talking. Well, hey, Black Bolt's not talking, but you know, yeah, he's emoting at them. Go to to the X-Men and Beast has finally joined up with them and he's breaking down what he's learned. They have like two weeks until the Terrigen cloud has gotten so potent and then it's gonna basically it's gonna disperse and there's nothing they can do about it and it will just be everywhere. There's nowhere they can avoid the cloud. It's like the cloud is gonna rain and become part of the atmosphere. He's basically saying they have two opportunities. They either leave the planet or die basically is what he was saying, right? Yeah, those are the two options that Beast outlines for them. They go to another planet or they die. And then Old Man Logan Again, in a very, I felt really strong, like Wolverine moment. He's like, You forgot the third option. We fight. When Eric hears this, and this I thought was a really strong line, and it fit with his character so well, where he's like, My people will not be gassed to death. Because that's what the mist is. The mist is a gas, and him being, you know, in a former Nazi internment camp, that is a very personal ideal of his, and something that fuels him and is so strong in him. Besides just mutants just being attacked and killed all the things that X-Men has built on, this is deep to the heart of him. And that panel with his fists and that line, I was just like, that is strong. That fits Magneto. He's by himself. He's against like a white mm-hmm. background. That is his moment. Yeah. That will be probably a poster at some point or a meme or something. It gets really strong. I was like, damn, he is not going down. He's not going to run. He doesn't want to leave. It's really his and Emma Frost's idea. Logan just presented yeah, the third option. Well, yeah, him and Emma Frost have been preparing since their talk. I think it's really interesting to see Magneto and Wolverine on the same team for the same ideological reasons. That doesn't happen very often. Shows the Inhumans searching this, like, ruined town. They have Beast's X-Gene detector, and they're trying to save everyone before the cloud gets it, and it's Gorgon, and he finds someone who, while they're trying to talk in Russian, which I don't know who that person is, but he grabs them and makes an escape. Oh, I do. It's part of the plan. Who is that person? I didn't recognize him in the... Okay, so we're going to kind of jump ahead here a little bit when they talk about the plan. They vote on what they're going to do. You know, are they going to leave the planet? Are they going to stay behind? And then they tell you that they've created a plan. And this is a phase of that plan. I know who that is, but I'll reveal when we unveil the plan. They all vote for the plan, and then you see the plan start unfolding. Beast doesn't agree. Jumps to weirdly Kamala walking the dog and he leaves 
got this great plan that they lay out, and then Logan like forgot about the mm-hmm. dog, the teleporting dog that can unravel all of your plans. Correct. They gave it to Kamala so that she can have kind of like her own life, but can be at a moment's notice back with. He's them. so big, though. I love him. <laughs> He's such a big drooly goofus dog. Yeah. Because arguing, and she just loses. Like I watched him kill Scott, and she's freaking out. And he's like, so we vote, and Storm runs the vote. Rogue's like, I don't want to live on Mars. She's like, I vote no. And so they're like going all through them, and the. I think the big thing that you want to reveal is so Beast goes to leave because he's like, I don't want any part of it. And he's just this. Not only do I not want any part of it, I'm going to tell the Inhumans what's going on. And he is zotted. I was like, whoa, because, you know, they have a history. Yes, and they do. he's like, Aurora, why? And the storm's like, it was my plan too. Like, Argh. maybe yeah. she gets a medical attention, but she's like, but for the rest of us, we're going. They got the information they need from him and that was all they were done with him. So this kind of reminds me when you actually see the X-Men's plan unfold, it's fucking brilliant and shocking at every turn. It reminds me a lot of the end of The Usual Suspects, where, you know, Verbal Kendrick is like, Verbal's walking away, Mm -hmm. and all of his ticks start falling apart, and you start seeing everything fall into place. That's when you start seeing their plan unfold. Mm -hmm. So it starts because of Karnak. Karnak can see flaws in things, so he's the first person they have to take out. And they do that by sending Jean Grey to him. And it reminds me a lot of the end of Doctor Strange, the Mm -hmm. movie, where they're in this, like, time loop. She's, like, trapped his mind, so she keeps going to him him and he figures out what she's doing and then she resets his mind and he's like eventually i'm gonna get out of this and she's like yeah i know but by the time you do it'll be too late so it's kind of like a distraction because they don't want to kill any of the inhumans but they are taking yeah. them down and i thought the most shocking one and brilliant one that i never would have imagined or seen coming was how they took out black yes i thought that was fantastic so he walks into the back room of the quiet room and emma is there waiting and they're talking and she's like learning i guess so i don't know what she's trying to do she's kind of like menacing yes. seductress and the performer who was at the beginning of the issue comes in and she's like oh yeah fun gig and emma's like let me be clear about our truth it's over yeah the performer pulls the gun because i didn't know who the performer was they don't really mention it at first and he pulls the gun and he starts you see the dote in his mouth as he opens up the talk and he attacks the girl with the gun who was the performer and her mask breaks and her gun shatters and all of a sudden, you see, like, this rainbow light glowing from her, and she's like, I love that. She's like, whoo, that was bracing. It was worse than the last time you used his voice. And then he grits his teeth, like, kind of figuring it out. Emma takes her diamond form and puts it under his jaw so he can't really move again to do it. Well, no, she doesn't just put it under his jaw. She punches him in the Adam's apple to crush his voice box. And then yeah. she's like, go ahead, Dazzler. He can't say a word. And Dazzler is useful. I was amazed. I was like, holy shit. It's starting to hurt holding it in. And then she lets it out. Dazzler was useful and relevant, and they didn't have to invent some crazy new power for her. They just used her existing useless mm-hmm. power to be incredibly useful. They send Black Bolt flying through like four walls. And I <laughs> like where yeah. she's like, remind me never to raise my voice to you, Allison. I really liked that part. So the X-Men's plan, though, is not over yet. Yeah. So they've taken out Karnak, they've taken out Black Bolt, and now that mutant that they rescued from the Terrigen Cloud reveals himself to be Magneto. It's like, 
one of their big problems was they have this giant ship that's super powerful and they can't get inside it to take it out. But Magneto pretended to be one of the refugees and was taken inside the ship. Magneto pretended to be the victim Mm -hmm. that they rescued and then now he's inside the ship and he starts tearing it apart with his Master of Magnetism stuff, wrapping everybody up in the parts of the ship and everything. Magneto goes to town! He just rips it to shreds and you see sort of the full power of Magneto here. It's pretty epic. And this is my favorite line. It's like, no one saves me. And while we're on the subject, you don't save mutants. Magneto has a lot of great moments in this. And then you get kind of like the comedy one where they took out the dog. It's Phantom X fed him a yeah. bunch of like dog tranquilizers. So he's like asleep in an alleyway with like his tongue hanging out, like eating a steak. Yeah, it's like everything I do for people and I have to go after the dog. Yeah. And then you see Medusa and Johnny Storm on the balcony getting ready for what's going to happen next. And then it says, we fight. And it's the panel of all the X-Men going to war. I like this one for the same reasons that you liked Hawkeye. And that I had very low expectations coming into this. And I was blown away by this. The problem with the previous one was it was telling me something I already knew what happened. So there was no suspense to it. I'm like, okay, this is not a badly told story, but I know what's going to happen. Here, I don't know what's going to happen. And I was able to be shocked and amazed and get to see the X-Men being the total badasses that they are. And with a kind of ruthlessness being led by Magneto and the White Queen that you haven't really seen necessarily before. This feels like one of those X-Men against the world last stands kind of time, which happens to them like every issue is you know, no. the end of mutant kind, but this one, I get that feel from it, and I loved it. So I end up giving it four and three quarters. Don't interrupt me, Sugar. I will give it four and a half. That was bracing. So another end of the world kind of situation here we've got going on is Suicide Squad number eight from DC Comics. There's two stories in here. There's Going Sane Part Four, I believe in Miracles, written by Rob Williams, pencils by Jim Lee, inks by Scott Williams, Richard Friend, and Sam. Under Hope Colors by Jeremiah. Then there's another story, Warm Heart, also written by Rob Williams, layout by Giuseppe Caminucoli, and finished art by Francesco Mattina. So this is a lead-in to the Suicide Squad versus Justice League storyline, the crossover event that we're going to get. So I don't know how much you've been keeping up with Suicide Squad. We've read some of, we've reviewed some of the issues here, but the basic, I guess, thrust of this is the Suicide Squad was sent to this Russian prison to get this like Russian black site to get something and ended up being General Zod and the portal to the dimension that he's been stuck in. So they had a big battle to take him down. They managed to take him down and now has Zod and the portal to the Phantom Zone in her control. And those are like super, super powerful. But there's been like a malfunction in her way to restrain him. And instead of having a red sun reflecting on him to make him weak, it's a yellow sun that's recharging him. Kind of everything in that prison flipped. It went from being a red sun to a yellow sun and all the good people became bad people all the sane people became insane all the insane people became sane so in this one harley quinn is now sane and all the rest of her teammates are going crazy yeah (laughs) killer croc is like i'm gonna eat your face i'm gonna make ramen entrails yeah entrails ramen entrails ramen i love that one so he's going after her and you've got flag who has taken a knife and like stabs himself in the thigh with it to have a lot of 
pain to distract him and like give him something to focus on so you can fight against it which is kind of like that old joke like oh man my shoulder hurts and then somebody's like stomps on your foot and they're like there now you're distracted from it you know same yeah. same kind of idea so he's got this knife in his leg and dr quinzel i don't want to call her harley quinn she's not at this point tells him that you're gonna bleed out to death you're crazier than all of us so he's firing his gun at killer croc croc's like you know my skin is bulletproof how are you gonna stop me and then he kind of shoves the gun up his nostril he's like are you bulletproof on the inside that was kind of cool so you've got the suicide squad fighting itself as they're you know some of them have flipped over to being completely crazy and some are still sane and i like that when they summon the enchantress in here a couple times they do and it's always kind of funny when they do you know she's terribly menacing and all that but she's humorous when she shows up so killer croc is really mad because june the archaeologist who found the enchantress that she liked him and he liked her and she's gone so he's really upset about that and she really brutally is telling him that he's like disgusting and makes her want to vomit and you know all of this stuff so she like encases him in this big block of ice which they kind of use to kind of humorous effect as they use it to like speed through the the prison like knock a lot of the way and like using as like a gun platform as they're going around which was kind of amusing so when they fought zod captain boomerang was destroyed he got blasted by zod's heat vision boots you smoking boots but now he's like the ghost in the machine like literally he is possessing all of the like computer equipment at this place which is kind of what's causing everything to get screwed up so there's this super villain who looks up to harley quinn who's like a computer hacker like she can talk to machines so she's talking yeah, she had like harley quinn tattoos and stuff in the same way that harley quinn idolizes the joker she idolizes harley quinn like that's who she wants to be she's got like the face tattoos and she does her hair like harley quinn so she can talk to machines so she's trying to work with boomerang to fix all the computer stuff that's going on so they can turn the prison back to normal so that's kind of interesting and boomerang in here is really funny i think yeah actually you get to see what a uh, like narcissistic, self-involved prick he is throughout a lot of this. <laughs> so there, there's parts in there where like he's like, I defeated Zod all by myself. Don't call me Captain Boomerang anymore. I'm General Boomerang. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Zod's body like falls on him and he gets trapped while he's saying all that stuff. Yeah. So... But that's jumping ahead a little bit. So you go ahead and you see Amanda Waller is in the room with Zod. And they're like, oh, you know, Waller, you're not crazy right now. But you don't have like a knife sticking out of your leg. So what's going on? And she's like, not all self-inflicted wounds are physical. So I think maybe, I don't know if she's just thinking about some bad things that she's done. And maybe that's what's keeping her sane, that that pain is giving her the distraction she needs. Yeah, you never know with her. So Zod breaks free of the containment unit that he's in and is dragging her her to like throw her into the black portal that'll take her into the phantom zone and that's when like harley quinn in a way they don't really touch on it that much but harley quinn really here i say harley quinn but it's, it's dr quinzel is choosing to sacrifice her own sanity to save everyone else that she knows when this happens it's going to flip back and she's going to be harley quinn again but she gets these they're like those paddles you use to like shock people when they're having like a heart attack mm-hmm. and she has captain boomerang and the supervillain who can control machines funnel all all of the red sun energy into those and she hits him in the back with it which reverses all of the polarity for everyone knocks Zod out and 
turns her back into being Harley Quinn, into being crazy. Like, there's actually a panel where she's kind of, like, in the corner, and Amanda Waller's, like, telling her, like, Dr. Quinzel, you did it. You saved all of us. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad, Amanda. These people in the prison, they drove me crazy, Puddin'. And then there's, like, this panel where it's just, like, the Joker's laugh at the ha-ha-ha-ha, you know, panel. And she takes off her glasses, yeah. So Boomerang has an effect of that red sun coming out, which is kind of some comic book bullshit, but whatever, he's back. That's kind of the crux of what's going to happen with the Justice League going against the Suicide Squad, is it's going to be over control of Zod and this portal to the Phantom Zone. Mm -hmm. You know, who's going to control it? Is it going to be Amanda Waller? Is it going to be the Justice League? What's going to happen? So that, I think, is going to be interesting. We get a backup story here, which is the Warm Heart one, which is Killer Frost, who's kind of parallel to the Victim Syndicate, where she was an associate of Mr. Freeze, and she's like a heat vampire. Like, she sucks the heat out of people to live, and that's what she does. So they have this specially constructed prison for her that's ice cold and has all these contained chambers for her. And she kind of goes around and meets each member of the Suicide Squad, and she kind of comments on each of them. Like, she likes Killer Croc because he's really big, and then when she meets some of the people, she's like, their hearts are ice cold. Like, that's one thing she says throughout the issue. Her father always told her that everyone has a warm heart. Some people just kind of bury it down deeper. And she goes through meeting all of the Suicide Squad, and you kind of get these little vignettes that really tell you kind of exactly who they are. And she meets, like, El Diablo, who's the the fire creator. And Mm. she's, like, instantly in love with him. She's like, you're beautiful. Yeah. She can just suck all that heat out of him and not kill him. Boomerang on the toilet. Boomerang on the toilet. He's like, I can't get, you know, a moment of privacy, which I thought was really funny and really kind of tells you everything you need to know about the characters. So then she's taken into the room with Amanda Waller and she's like, that's the coldest room in this entire building. And then she says, like with Amanda Waller, that, you know, her dad used to say everyone has a warm heart. Some people just keep it buried deep down inside. And she's like, my daddy was wrong. Yeah. Amanda Waller is a stone-cold badass. Like, I feel like she's what Maria Hill wants to be, but she's way better than Maria Hill. Yeah. Because I think Amanda Waller owns it. You know, she knows she's bad. She doesn't pretend to be good. She's doing good things, like saving the world, but she's using whatever method she needs to do. I think she's the better version of the two. Yeah. In my so that was uh, Suicide Squad number eight. It's going to lead into Justice League versus Suicide Squad. should start, I think, next month. Bad about Harley, though. It wouldn't be Harley if she wasn't crazy, so... You knew it was going to have to go back to there. And yeah, bringing Boomerang back is such a comic book thing. I was like, oh, but but he's funny. He was really good in this issue. So the fact that they bring him back, like, oh, he's so good. Well, I guess I'm glad he's back because he, yeah. he came back and he was really lame. Uh, and- but it is total comic book hand-waving undoing that brings him back. Yeah. So, but I didn't really also want to see like the saga of, you know, the return of Boomerang or something like that because he's not that important to, Correct. to do. Um, I ended up giving it for my daddy was wrong. I gave it three and three quarters. Entrails Ramen! Uh, Croc. So, those were the books we read this week. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page, Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. We also have a second podcast for the PC gaming for the cheap and broke called Four Color Nerds Broke Gaming. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep... Keep reading nerds and go see Rogue One.